I've been going back over Romans 7 and 8, 7 and 8, 7 and 8, 7 and 8, over and over again. I've been reading commentary after commentary after commentary. And I'm here to tell you that it's not just Jewish scholars who disagree with each other. That was a joke. You know, three Jews, four opinions. The, the, the gamut of explanations and interpretations of these two chapters is absolutely incredible and incredible to our detriment because bad theology produces bad practice. And so if I get a little academic with you this morning, I'm asking you to please forgive me. But I'm also asking that you please pay very close attention this morning as we talk about something that is very, very important, not just to the life of the body of Messiah, but specifically to the life of Messianic Jewish believers. And we address the question, is the law sin? Is the law sin? I'm reading this morning from Romans 7, beginning in verse 7 and through verse 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, and many translations say the sin, but the sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, the sin, the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. Now, if you were a Jewish person in the first century, reading Paul's letter to the congregation in Rome, you would most likely be pretty shocked at the way Paul speaks about the law and the Torah. The Jews of Paul's day highly esteemed the law of God in every sense. And so, if you will, what Paul has said so far in this letter, I think would have troubled them to say the least. Romans 3.20 because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For, the, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What? You can't become right with God, can't be made just by the law. All the law can do is bring a knowledge of sin? How about Romans 3.21? But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophet. You see, being made right with God is apart from the law. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.13 and 14, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. What? It is those who are made heirs by faith that receive the promise, not by the law. 
Romans 5.20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law was given by God to increase transgression? How about Romans 6.14? For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. This would have stunned them. Not under the law? I mean, doesn't that make us Gentiles? Romans 7, 4, which we looked at last week. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Messiah, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In other words... The law barred them from marrying the Messiah. Only death to the law can free them from the law to belong to him. In Paul's marriage analogy, he is talking about Israel being married to the flesh, the body of Adam. Living under the law brings about sinful passions. You cannot obey the law while in the flesh. But wait, there's more. Romans 7, 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The law arouses sin and links up with sin to bring about death. Okay, one more. Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Their readers were hearing that the law hinders life in the Spirit, and you must be released from it so that you may serve in the newness of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but it sure sounds like Paul has a negative view of the law. I mean, hasn't Paul implied that the law is not something good but something evil? Isn't this precisely what his Jewish opponents accused him of doing? I'm reading from Acts 21, verses 27 and 28. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. Listen, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides... He has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Sounds like Paul is antinomian. I just had to show off my theological knowledge. All that means is it sounds like he's against the law. This would have inflamed the Jews of his day. They esteemed the law of God. And when we talk about the law, please, we are not just referring to the Ten Commandments. The rabbis had gone through the Hebrew Scriptures and found 613 commands that had to be kept. This was the law, all 613 commandments. There were 248 mandatory things to be done. These commands related to God, to the temple, sacrifices, to vows, to rituals, to donations, to Sabbaths, to animals for consumption, to things you ate, festivals, idolatry, war, social issues, family issues, judicial matters, legal matters, slavery, and on and on and on. 248 mandatory things that had to be done. But there were also 365 prohibitory things that were not to be done. And these commands related to idolatry, 
historical events, blasphemy, temple worship, sacrifices, priests, vows, agriculture, loans, business, slaves, justice, relationships. <gasps> so, if you were a God-fearing Israelite, you spent all of your time trying to keep the 248 and avoid the 365. To first century Judaism, the law was the most precious gift that God had given them, safeguarding their relationship with him. And then along comes Paul and connects the law to the sin and says that they are not under the law and that they had died to the law. Now, a thoughtful listener to the apostle may have thought something like this. Now, Paul, you just said in chapter 6 that the believer has died in respect to sin. And now, in chapter 7, the believer has died with respect to the law. So, if the believer has died with respect to sin, and he's died with respect to the law, Paul, aren't you putting the two in the same category? Aren't you saying that the law stands in the same category that sin stands? Is God's law sinful? And that brings us to today's text. Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know the sin, and I'm emphasizing the article the, I would not have come to know the sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And in Paul's typical style, he raises questions. Is the law sin? I mean, Paul had preached the good news of Messiah all over the Eastern world. He spent many hours on street corners, many hours in synagogues, hours even in schools like in Ephesus and in other public places, literally debating the truth to the good news. And undoubtedly, he had heard all of the objections that can be lodged against the truth of faith in Messiah. And so because of that, he continually raises questions. Why? Because these are questions that his Romans readers, his Roman readers probably had. He brings up these questions. Why? So that he can answer them. Make sense? Amen. And law here can only be the Mosaic law. In order to make Paul relevant, unfortunately, theologians have read law as though it referred to a general moral law which all human beings lived under. For Paul, the law is Torah, the Jewish law, period. And dear ones, we cannot, we must not change the meaning of law to attempt to make Paul's words relevant to us. We need to understand Paul in context so that then we can seek application. What's Paul's response to the question? May it never be. And when Paul uses this expression in Romans, he's saying, this is a, listen, false conclusion based on a correct premise. I need to repeat that one. It's a false conclusion based on a correct premise. The premise is, we are dead to sin and to the law. So the conclusion is the law and sin are the same category, and therefore the law is sinful. No, Paul's answer to the question is found in verse 12. The law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Dear ones, the law is an expression of God's character. It is not sin. So then the question arises, who is the I here in this uh, uh, section of Scripture? The identity of I in verses 7 all the way to 25 generates a lot of controversy in all the various commentaries that I've read. And there are three main views on this. One point is that the I is autobiographical. In other words, it's the experience of Paul. And by far, this is the predominant view, stating that Paul describes from his own experience how sin took advantage of the entrance of the law. In this explanation, Paul relates his experience as a young Jewish boy when he became a quote-unquote son of the commandment at age 13. And until this time, Paul had not realized his own sin. But once he became aware of the requirement of the law, he saw himself as a sinner. Let me give you some of the interpretations of the commentators that I read. S.L. Johnson, he was a pastor, a theologian, and a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. This is what reflects his view. He writes, Here is the Apostle Paul, one of the leading representatives of the leading religion of the day, Judaism, and he is a man who confesses he had not known sin. Quote, I have not known sin but by the law. Really? That's an amazing thing. I mean, he goes on to say, finally, God spoke to the apostle, tore away all those things that prevented him from seeing himself as he really was, and he saw that he was a sinner. A second view is that the I refers to Adam's experience with God's commandment in the Garden of Edom. There's a gentleman named Ernst Caseman. He wrote an incredible commentary on Romans. He writes this, There is nothing in the passage which does not fit Adam, and everything fits Adam alone. Now, we'll we'll look at this and how this view fits or doesn't fit in a moment. The third view is that I refers to Israel's reception of the law at Sinai and their transgression and their subsequent death. And this explanation, I think, would account for the historical narrative that's found in verses 8 through 10. Are you confused yet? I see Paul here not talking about himself. This is not autobiographical. I believe that Paul uses I as a rhetorical device. What he does is he personifies both Adam and Israel. I'll explain. And so I think a combination of the second and third views best fits the text. N.T. Wright, he's a Pauline theologian and an Anglican bishop. He writes this, Paul's point is precisely, please listen, that what happened on Sinai replayed what happened in Eden. What happened at Sinai replayed what happened in Eden. What he has done here is to tell one story, that of Israel, that echoes another story, that of Adam. Letter writing in the first century had a common practice to do what was called putting on a character. In other words, essentially, it was a character renowned in biblical history. Now, for example, we do that all the time when we talk about Passover. We always recount the Passover in the first person, don't we? Even if we didn't experience it in ourselves. And we do it in an effort to identify with the people who went through the Passover. We say things like this, I was held in Egyptian slavery. God delivered me through his servant Moses. In other words, 
Speaking in the first person could be a way of creating what I would call solidarity with others by taking on a character. Paul is telling the story of Israel in the first person singular, and he is identifying himself with his people Israel in a way so that he cannot be accused of being anti-Semitic. I would not have come to know the sin except through the law. Notice that it is still the, still the sin, which I believe is the sin of Adam, and it goes back to Romans 5.12 and Romans 5.20. I would not have known that I was in Adam and condemned had the law not revealed that to me. The law is not sin, but the law reveals sin. It's the same thing that Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 20. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now, Reformed theologians, what they like to do is distinguish the moral from the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. And many of them contend that God has only terminated the ceremonial part of the law. Again, S.L. Johnson writes, So when he says, is the law sin, he's speaking specifically of the moral law incorporated into the law of Moses. Those Ten Commandments which are not to ever be separated from the whole of the Mosaic law, but what Reformed expositors call the moral part of the Mosaic law. John MacArthur, everybody's heard of John MacArthur. Grace to You is his website. He's the president of the Master's University. This is what he writes. Paul gets very personal back in Romans, very personal. And you see the first person pronoun, I. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. He's talking about the moral law here, not ceremonial law and ritual law, which had been set aside, was being, of course, set aside first when Yeshua came and was really finally crushed in his death and eventually obliterated in the destruction of Jerusalem. All of that went away. But he's talking about the moral law. <laughs> I know. In reality, there is absolutely Absolutely nothing in Scripture to support the idea that the law has been divided in three parts. Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. This is an unbiblical division. To the Jews, the law was 613 commandments, period. Enough said. Now, Paul's first argument is that the law has made Adam or Israel or both know what sin is. The law is in direct conflict with sin. It presents the very standard that sin opposes, that is, God's standard. It is like light, and its introduction into the darkness shows what was hidden. The problem is not the law. The problem is the condition of man. He is in Adam and a slave to sin. To think that the law is sinful is like calling an x-ray evil simply because it has some kind of relationship to cancer. An x-ray is good and beneficial simply because it exposes what is faithful to man if not dealt with. And so too, the law exposes sin in man, which must be dealt with through the blood of of Yeshua Messiah. Augustine had a fourth century mentor. His name was Ambrose. He was the Bishop of Milan. And he summarized Paul's concern in these verses. Quote, The law is the discoverer, 
not the begetter of sin. The law is the discoverer, not the begetter of sin. Paul writes, For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. The intention of the law is to prevent sin. The law says you shall not covet rather than you can covet. The word known here is gnosko, which is normally reserved for experiential knowledge rather than academic or intellectual knowledge. The law didn't merely give a correct academic understanding of sin. It made Adam slash Israel aware of its power and authority. The light of the law exposed the full horror of sin's true nature. And the word covet is from the Greek word epithumeo, which means simply desire. And it can be desires we should have, as in Hebrews 6.11, or desires we should not have. And here, it's used of wrong desires. The desire to eat the forbidden fruit was the root sin of both Adam and Eve. We see this in Genesis 3. The serpent asked Eve, the serpent who was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? In effect, this is what he was asking. Did God command that all the trees are off limits? And Eve corrected him. But in doing so, she added to the command. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Actually, nothing about touching it was stated in the original command which was given in Genesis 2.17. The subtle twisting of God's commands viewed as denying Eve of something pleasurable was at work. And so the serpent continues. The serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan said, God's lying to you. He's holding out on you. Eating of this tree will be to your advantage. It'll make you happy and wise. And so Eve began to desire or to covet. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The word here, desirable, comes from the Hebrew word hamad, which can also be translated covet. And this indicates that Eve's desire can be traced to a desire to be just like God. Dear ones, coveting shows that we've lost our contentment in all that God is for us. Some desires show that we've lost our satisfaction in God and what he is for us. And we're yearning for other things. Things that will make up for the fact that God is not the treasure for us that he ought to be. And discontentment with God and his provisions is at the root of coveting. Paul compared it to idolatry in Ephesians because he understood that man often worships his desires and not his God. And so we see in verse 7 of Romans 7 that the law reveals sin. We see that apart from God giving a command, we would have no knowledge of sin. Maybe this is why there's so little knowledge of sin in our society today because there's so little knowledge of God's word. Back in 1973, Carl Menninger, he was a psychiatrist. He wrote a very influential book. 
It was called Whatever Became of Sin. The whole burden of the book was to document the disappearance of sin from American society. 1973. In that book, this is what Dr. Menninger says, quote, The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle, but the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion, why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? And this is what I would have to say. Not many do believe in sin anymore. And this is because God's word reveals sin and we've done away with God and his word in our society and in the church. I'm going to ruffle some feathers here when I talk about a pastor named Joel Osteen who's the pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, which is the largest congregation in America. Over 30,000 members. He doesn't talk about sin. Larry King once asked him, is sin a word you don't use? Osteen responded, I don't use it. I never thought about it, but I probably don't. But most people already know what they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that they can change. There can be a difference in their life. So I don't go down the road road of condemning. Isn't it our job to hold up the word of God to the conscience of our society so that people will will be made aware of their need for God? Listen to what Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, said. He once visited a church and was asked what the preacher spoke on. He simply said, sin. Then he was asked, what did he say about it? Mr. Coolidge was asked. He was against it. (laughs) We need more churches today who are against sin. Amen? Romans 7, 8. But the sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Again, it's the sin taking the opportunity. Sin, with a capital S, is seen here as a principality that uses commandment to arouse sins with a little s. In Adam's case, sin didn't exist in the human race before the giving of the commandment. Oh, I got to say that again. Sin did not exist in the human race before the giving of the commandment. Before God gave the command in Eden, Satan had no opportunity to seduce Adam. But the giving of the command changed that. And Satan seized his opportunity to challenge man's love for and obedience to his creator. Through Adam's disobedience, he acted like an adulterer, rejecting God's love and embracing sin. And the covenant with God was terminated. And man entered into a relationship with sin and the law was powerless to change it. The law was powerless to change it. Romans 7, 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. This can only be true of Adam. It can only be true of Adam. We know from Romans five twelve that all men are born dead in Adam. 
No one since Adam was alive in a theological sense. So how is Paul using alive and died? Well, it seems to me if we keep this verse in its larger context and we go back to Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The death here is the same death that we see in the text that we're looking at this morning. Adam was alive. He was in fellowship with God. But when he sinned, he died. He lost fellowship with God. He died spiritually. John MacArthur again writes this. Listen how personal Paul is as he's describing his pre-salvation experience. When he says, I was once alive, he doesn't mean I was possessor of spiritual life. He doesn't mean I was a possessor of eternal life. He's simply saying, I was free. That's not what Paul says. Paul could have said free, but he said alive. Here's Tom Constable. He's also a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. This is what he writes. Paul was, Paul was relatively alive apart from the law. I'm just reading it. No one is ever completely unrelated to it. However, in his past, Paul had lived unaware of the law's true demands and was therefore self-righteous. John Piper, I was once alive apart from the law. That is, he once had little or no consciousness of sin or condemnation of slavery. He just did what he felt like doing. It seemed like freedom and felt like being alive. Now listen. They all know that Paul was not spiritually alive apart from the law. So, they all have to make alive mean something other than spiritually alive. Paul, as Adam, as Israel, remembers the start of the story before the tree of knowledge of good and evil had ever been mentioned. As soon as the command was given, temptation presented himself and lured him to disobey the command of God. When Paul says in verse 8, sin taking opportunity... And in verse 9, sin became alive. Dear ones, those are military terms. They are terms for waiting in ambush. Paul is referring to Satan, who took the opportunity to seduce Adam with false promises. And this brought an end to fellowship with God and established humanity's bondage to sin. Now, MacArthur, because of his view that Paul is talking about himself, says this, true believers even though they are new creations, and because they are new creations, have a built-in nature that despises remaining sin. And no matter how they would want to feel good about their spiritual progress, they continually feel like disappointments to God, hating the flesh that clings to that glorious new creation. If that isn't a sad statement, I don't know what is. What kind of relationship? can we have with God when we continually feel like disappointments to him? I am not a disappointment to God. You are not a disappointment to God. You and I are in union with his son. We are religious. We are holy. We have perfectly obeyed the law. Believers are not disappointments to God. We are his holy children. And so I hope you can see that misinterpretation leads to bad theology. Romans 7.10, and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. 
I don't think that's really a good translation, by the way. That's from the New American Standard. The Greek word translated result here is the word ice. No connection with current politics. The word ice is found 146 times in the Brit Hadashah, and it's translated result only here and in 1 Peter 1.7. Life did not come as a result of the commandment. The commandment was there to protect the life that Adam had. Young puts it this way, the command that is for life, this was found by me for death. In other words, he knew the command was given for positive reasons, to bless and protect man, and Adam's perversity in believing Satan's lie and in accusing God of malice was the problem. And so humankind, through its disobedience, died to the relationship with God for which it had been created. Originally, the law was ordained to life. L'chaim. God made man perfect. God gave man a perfect law. God promised Adam life on condition of obedience. As long as he obeyed, just one commandment, the law would justify him. The law was his friend. The law was his protector. Then man rebelled against the law. And with all the fury and power of divine authority, the law sentenced him to death, became his jailer, and threw him into prison. It's kind of like our state or federal laws, isn't it? I mean, as long as you honor and obey them and respect them, the law is your friend and your protector. But suppose you rebel and become an enemy of the law. What then? Then the law becomes your adversary. It will take hold of you and cast you in jail. Obedience to the law brings life, but fallen man, man and Adam, cannot obey the law. This is why when Yeshua was asked by the rich young ruler, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Yeshua's response was, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Yeshua was using the law to point out this man's sin. But the man didn't see his sin and responded, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Romans 7:11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. I don't know about you, but to me, this is clearly talking about the serpent in the garden. The word killed here is apoktemo. It's used 70 times in the Brit Hadashah, and it's always used of literal killing. Paul sees sin as a predator waiting to attack, waiting to kill. Satan saw his opportunity in the garden when the command was given and realized that the law of God given for man's blessing could be used against Adam. He enticed him to disobey. He secured the decisive victory that he wanted. He turned man against God and put him in a position of guilt before the very one who loved him. Romans 7, 12. So then, so then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So then brings this section to a conclusion. Paul here is answering the question raised in Romans 7, 7, where he asked, is the law sin? Far from being sinful, the law is holy. It comes from a holy God, and it searches out sin. It is righteous because it lays just requirements on people and because it forbids and condemns sin. It is good because its purpose is to produce blessing and life. It is holy 
it is righteous, it is good, and ultimately, these attributes express the character of the living God whose commandment it is. Paul is going to tell us that the problem is not with the law, it's with the flesh. Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The law, amen, the law could not produce God's righteousness, and it wasn't the law's fault. The problem was in the flesh. And what the law couldn't do, God did. Amen. In this text, Romans 7, 7 to 12, Paul is describing the arrival of Torah in Israel and saying when Torah came, Israel replayed the sin of Adam. Israel pictures to the world what happened in the Garden of Eden. And this was what Paul was saying in miniature in Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So, the law is not identical with sin. The law is just, the law is holy, the law is good. And next, Romans 7.13, Paul asks and answers another question. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? To be continued. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for life in Yeshua. And we now come to you today, Lord, to celebrate that life by partaking of your table by remembering the body that was offered and the blood that was shared. I wonder, Bill, if you could help me. Bill, if you could help me. And Tim, if you could help me. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Yair Adonai panav elecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yosem lecha shalom The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. Shabbat shalom.